from the entertainment capital of the world, Las Vegas. This is Creator Talks, and I'm your host, Christopher Calloway. Last week, I interviewed Meredith Finch, and we talked about one of the books that she was working on, The Age of Conan Valeria. And my guest this week is Alan Davis, who just wrapped up a two-part story written by Roy Thomas in The Savage Sword of Conan. And we are going to talk about his next work coming up through Marvel Comics, Tarot. It's the Avengers versus the Defenders. That will be a four-part story. The artist on that book is going to be Paul Renault, and Alan's going to tell me how that story came about and how he came about working with Paul. This is something that has sort of been in the works, and he'll explain why. As for Paul, I first saw his work on the cover of Dynamite Comics. He was doing some beautiful covers for Dejah Thoris. We are going to learn how Alan collaborated with Brian Michael Bendis on Avengers Prime. And we're also going to learn how he collaborates with Paul on his book, Tarot. Just how the heck does Alan manage to balance all those heroes getting some face time in a multi-team crossover book? And how does he get into each character? What is his secret? You know, comics have changed over the years since Alan began working in them. Remember, he worked on the X-Men. He worked on Excalibur, Captain Britain. Well, we find out how these changes have impacted his comics and how it impacts other comics today. And when I kick back with the creator, I ask Alan all my fun questions, and one of them about any regrets that he has, the one that got away, will break the hearts of comic collectors everywhere. And so, without further ado, here is my interview with Alan Davis talking about his new book, Tarot, through Marvel Comics. Here now on Creator Talks. Alan, welcome to Creator Talks. Thank you. Nice to speak to you. The first time I met you, the only time I met you, was at Baltimore Comic Con. It was back in, I believe, 2014. And I think to make the day extra special for me, it was my birthday, and it was the all-star reception that they had. And you were there greeting fans. I recall your hand was wrapped. What happened? You hurt your hand? Uh, no, um, I, I broke my wrist when I was, well, it was the day before my 13th birthday. And um, the bone healed up. But the wrist has got a, a non-bone joint. Everyone's wrist has got a non-bone joint. And mine have been sort of permanently damaged. And as, I, as I've got older, it's got more unstable. And I'd started wearing a strap. But since then, I've been told to stop wearing the strap because it's making the wrist weaker. So um, I'm doing different stuff instead. But it's a, a lifelong injury that I just have to deal with. Now, is that your drawing hand? Yeah. And does that make it difficult to draw? I mean, your drawing still is great, so does it make it painful at times? Well, things has been there since I was 13. No, it doesn't. My wrist can be dislocated very easily. When you first got into comics, you picked up, or were looking to pick up the book, How to Draw Comics the Marvel Way, and that led you into eventually working in comics. Tell me how that happened. Well, I had no real ambition to try to get work in comics, but I was sort of an enthusiastic amateur and just wanted to learn. And when I saw the book existed, I tried to order one. And the company that was selling it, it was a, a mailing company, um, they didn't have it in stock, so they asked me to wait. And during the period and through different interactions, I, I got to know the company a little bit more. They asked me to start sending them sketches. And um, that led on to um, the guy who ran the company, Mike Conroy, telling me that Marvel UK were looking for people to draw. And it was at a convention, the first British convention 
uh, for many years in London. And I went along to that, and I was offered work by Paul Neary. And so that book led me into uh, getting work in comics. Speaking of comics, some of the things that really influenced you were the strips back when you were reading comics, mostly strips, black and white. And would you say that by learning and enjoying those black and white strips and learning to draw black and white without color with a lot of your earlier work, do you think that helped make you a better artist? Well, it's a kind of a yes and no thing. My personal preference, I, I love newspaper strips. Um, I love the three-panel or whatever format. I love that narrow band and the way that people have to be so much more creative within that. But also, British comics, when we did have colour, it was full colour. It was full painted colour. The sort of colour that has only entered American comics very recently. Possibly the most famous colour strip we had was Dan Dare, which was the product of a studio, and it was very, very high quality. And there were a couple of others that were equally well known. And there's an artist who is still working, and John M. Burns, who is a master of that colour format. Um, he has done a little bit of work in American comics over the years, but not very much. Now, have you kept a lot of those comics? I understand you would scrapbook, keep a lot of those. Do you still have those old strips as a reference? Um, not as a reference, but uh, yeah. I mean, like many of these things, uh, they, they've been reprinted in volumes nowadays, so you can get hold of them. One of the strips that I liked, um, Lance McLean, was reprinted in a sort of a private club. Then there's been other strips which you can uh, get online. You know, Various fans scan the ones that they've got. I had a lot and contributed to these same sites. So you can get hold of them, you can see them. Are there any that you would recommend to writers and artists alike that would be a good reference for them? Something that they read it and enjoy and also learn from? My personal favorite of the newspaper strip was Garth by Frank Bellamy. The Garth strip had started in the 40s and Frank Bellamy took it over in the, uh, in the 70s. And he was on it for a few years. And I think that was the pinnacle of British uh, comic newspaper strips. Frank Bellamy also did um, some incredible color work, which I, I should have mentioned previously, because although Dan Dare's the most famous, my favorite work was done by Frank Bellamy. He did a strip called Heroes the Spartan, and that's available in a volume now. So um, things like that, they belied their years. They were so advanced, and the quality was just superb. So good things to check out and still really hold up in terms of the quality. Let's cover some of the basics about your current work. You are working on something for Marvel, Avengers Defenders Tarot. And that one, from what I've seen, and I'm looking at the solicitation here, it looks like my Avengers that I grew up reading. And I was very excited to see that, both the Avengers and Defenders, because uh, way back in the day, they had a clash back in the 70s. And I'm wondering, where does this story take place? If it were placed within Marvel's history of publishing, when about would that be? Well, it's not determined exactly, but it would be in the, uh, the 70s. When you see the comic, you'll see that that's not strictly true. It's slightly out of time, but that would be a good rule of thumb. And at first glance, you might think, oh, this is the old superheroes fight. There's a misunderstanding. They make up. They go after the villain. But I know there's a lot more to this than that. That was something they would do back in the 70s. Kind of an easy little trope there to throw out. But that's not what this is. There is much more behind this. There seems to be a master manipulator that is pitting the two teams against each other as a form of some kind of competition or contest. What can you share so far about the story, about what is bringing these two titans together to clash? As you say, with the, the traditional strips, it was through a misunderstanding that the, the two teams would end up fighting. And it definitely isn't that. 
Um, I can't really give too much away without saying that Diablo is involved and um, there are various other forces involved, which won't become clear until much later in the story. Fair enough. I know you don't want to give away too much. You can see when people look at their solicit, they will see Diablo's on the second cover, so we'll find out how he's involved. Do you find it a challenge to write these characters that have been around for decades and have a very long history? Now, you did say this is kind of out of time, so it's not adhering to a strict continuity, which does help quite a bit because it can get very complicated. But is it more of a challenge trying to include all these heroes with a very complex history? No, I don't think so. I think in many ways, uh, back then, comics were written more like that. Um, the continuity buffs have got very much more dogmatic nowadays. Um, there was a, a kind of a sense of picking a character up, taking them through a story arc and putting them back where you got them in the 70s. That there was no major changes to the characters. It was a story could stand on its own and be outside of any strict continuity because you didn't make any irreversible changes during the course of the story. When there was an initial Avengers Defenders crossover way back 70s, I just missed that because when I got into comics, it was maybe a year or two after that. But it was like an eight-part series, and it was crossing over Avengers and Defenders titles. So you had multiple artists, you had multiple writers. And I would think for an editor, it could be a bit of a headache trying to uh, keep all the trains running and on time. Because I know back then, too, the dreaded deadline would hit. And then sometimes there'd be fill-ins. Not for that particular series I'm referring to, but that could happen. So in this case, this is yours that you're writing and working with Paul Renault on the art. Do you prefer conducting an entire story that is work needs to be done and if there's an opportunity of course professional you take it but i'm wondering if there were a multi-part crossover with other creators would that be something you would do or do you prefer it in this sense where you take it from first issue to last issue all the way through i did experience that when i was working on uh, the xbooks i plotted both xbooks for around 18 months and um that was yeah it, it wasn't fun because um, there was a lot of petty politics and a lot of one-upsmanship. I don't think um, some of the regular writers respected the fact that I could be a writer as well as a penciler. And um, when I went on to the X-Men back then, it was a case of needs must that Marvel had lost the two writers on the X-Books and they needed some fill-ins and the fill-ins for one month became two months, became three months, became 18 months. And I was really working not to produce a story that I would have chosen to do, but basically to keep the thing afloat. So it wasn't in the same way as having a, a big event story that was decided ahead of time. It was really something that just happened. And once I was in the flow, I just kept on going. Now with Tarot, is this something that you have thought about, had the back of your mind, or did Marvel approach you and say, we'd like to do a crossover, and you're the guy to do it? How did that come about? It started initially that Paul Renault, uh, I've known Paul for a, a very long time, you know, long before he got into the business, and we kept in touch when he did start working in the business. We would uh, talk about what was going on and be up to date, and at some point he said to me, um, would you consider working with me at some point and, you know, writing something? I says, yeah, sure. But it was one of those vague things that you don't think is ever going to happen. And the next thing I got an email from uh, Tom Brevo saying that uh, Paul Reynolds told me that you're prepared to write something for him. Uh, is that true? And I said, yeah. So he said, uh, send something over. So I sent it over. And again, I thought this is going to hit some sort of deadline hell. And 
it's just going to get lost in production. It didn't. Uh, Tom got back to me very, very quickly within a matter of about, I think it was about a week, and said, yeah, could you start producing plots? And um, so I actually did full scripts. And uh, yeah, it, it happened very, very quickly. So it was Paul Renault that asked me and then asked Tom, and then Tom asked me officially, and, and it was just as simple as that. Was there any kind of research you had to do for the story? No, um, I really just wanted to give uh, Paul Reno his dream story. I grilled Paul and asked him what he was looking for and tried to include as much of that as possible. So in a vague way, not, not in any specific way, Paul asked for certain things and I tried to give him everything that he wanted in a way that he didn't expect. So he didn't know what the story was going to be about and even as he was getting each issue, he didn't know what was going to happen in the next issue. But in a, a broad sense, there were things that he'd asked for. So what's been his reaction as he received the uh, scripts from you? Um, yeah, positive. <laughs> <laughs> you know, uh, writer, artist, you do both. And when we stop learning, we're done. You know, we're always learning, always picking up new things. With that said, what have you picked up about writing, working with other writers? For example, Bendis, when you worked on Avengers Prime. Well, I didn't really have any uh, communication uh, with him, he sent me the uh, the scripts, and you know I worked on them. It was as simple as that. There wasn't any uh, communication. There wasn't any discussion. Uh, he had the story, and um, he'd uh, left enough latitude for me to do a little bit of interpretation in the art. The, the visuals were quite loose the way they described them. But other than that, no, there was nothing. I should say in the the early days when I first got into comics. Um, Initially, uh, Paul Neary was my uh, mentor at Marvel UK, and he taught me a tremendous amount about uh, drawing and storytelling. Um, Paul himself is a writer and uh, and artist, although he's known more commonly as an inker nowadays. Then when I started working for American Comics, Mike Barr taught me a huge amount. It was my first um, knowledge of working on a 22-page uh, comic in Britain. It was like five to... 10-page strips um, at most. He taught me about drawing for colour and meeting the deadlines and working on a regular monthly book and all those other things. So um, Mike Barr was very influential. And then when um, I worked with Chris Claremont, I mean, that was just um, mind-blowing uh, getting to work on, with Chris. Now, working with Paul Ontero is more like what you like doing. You're actually collaborating back and forth more rather than receiving the script to draw yourself. So working with Paul, you've known him for a long time, as you said. What are you learning about art from him? Well, I don't know if there's anything that I could say in, in that way. I haven't really communicated too much with Paul because I don't want to put him under pressure. I just wanted him to have a really good time. While I was doing this, I was also penciling the last Thanos book. Um, that I did three Thanos 100-page uh, books. So tarot wasn't my main objective. Um, it, it was just one of the things that I had on my plate at the time. And I would basically write up the issue over a period of a week or so and um, then send it out and get back to penciling. You worked on many characters. So which of all the ones that you've worked on is closest to your heart? Mm, I have a kind of a stock answer to this, which is true nonetheless. And it's that whenever I work on any character, I have to find something in it in that character that I like. Because when I work on a group book, although I might have a character that when I was a kid I had a preference for, as an adult I have to realize that each reader has a different favorite. And you have to do something good with each one of those characters or else you're letting down that 
that reader. Say, for instance, if you're doing the X-Men, if you focus on Wolverine, you're going to make all the Wolverine fans happy, but the Nightcrawler and the Phoenix and the Shadowcat fans are all going to be disappointed. So you have to try and work across the board, and that's true when you're writing and when you're drawing. You have to keep in mind that every character in the strip is potentially someone's favourite character, and you should be making them worthwhile of being someone's favourite character. So when you're writing them, how do you get into them so you find that essence that really draws you to the character and you can bring out the best? Well, most of the time it's just to be familiar with the best previous appearances. When I worked on FF The End, I basically felt like I was just raiding the house of Stan and Jack because they had all the ideas there, they had all the characters developed. I didn't have to invent anything. I just had to take the toys out and play with them for a little while and then put them back. Well, with all the books you've worked on, team books, solos, is there anything left that you haven't done yet that you would really like to take a crack at? Not in the, um, the sort of superhero genre, um, no. I think I've been incredibly lucky to have drawn pretty much everyone for both Marvel and DC, even if it's only sort of a cameo appearance. I've been allowed to put my grubby little mitts onto everything. Well, with all those books that you've done, you know, comics have changed over time since we both began reading them and you first started working on them. What have been some of the most difficult things to adjust to that were not an obstacle when you first started, but they're a little more difficult now and you've had to adjust over time to those changes? Well, I think most it's uh, to do with production because when I first started working in comics, it was newsprint. It was very, very cheap paper, very cheap publication. And you had to draw to survive the system. And that was true over many years and through things like uh, flexographic printing when they started to use plastic plates and then using different types of colour processing now going into computer colouring where you will get um, colourists who try to dominate the work that they ignore what you've drawn and they just want to um, impress everyone with all their gimmicks. Mm. And you end up with very muddy, impenetrable comics. And I think it's always down to that thing of uh, production values. And the real bugbearer you know, nowadays is the fact that so many colorists color for it to look good on a computer screen. They don't color for it to be uh, printed well. That's frustrating. Yes, and it's something I've mentioned on the podcast many times is when things are recolored that were old and on newsprint, I never like the way they look. I mean, I much prefer to go out and find... Uh, an older reprint perhaps or if I can find a copy that's affordable get that something is missing it's not the way it was meant to be nor on the medium that it was meant to be published upon yeah I think that there's a vagueness to um, poor printing where it was like a soft focus filter had been put onto it and now with everything being very very sharp um, overly rendered, you know, because most of these things, when you're saying something's been recolored, it's the thing of, of trying to have all the bells and whistles on every page, even if it's unnecessary. And it just becomes too much. It just swamps everything. Yeah. It even happens in film. And it's something I never thought about until someone wrote about it, is that a lot of the older black and white films when they play on modern televisions, that they have the, uh, the motion smoothness that they use for sports to make the action look better on your screen so it's not juddery and it's a very smooth image. Well, with an old black and white film, if you still have it on your TV, it changes the look of it. So now it's looking more like video than film because of the smoothing process. 
So even our technology is changing the way older films look by the way they're being processed. I've never heard of that, no. I forget who wrote the article. I'll try to dig that up and post it in the notes, but some people are complaining about that in Hollywood. I was watching an old episode of The Avengers, and that's Stephen Peel, and I noticed it that it was a film episode released in 65 when it started showing over here in the States. And I noticed that it looked different because I was watching it on a newer TV that had motion smoothing. I've seen colorized films. I've not seen anything of that. That's the first I've heard of it. Well, this is the part of the show where I call Kicking Back with the Creator, where we ask questions just to learn more about you. Just fun things. They can be related to comics. They don't have to be. But it's just to get a better understanding of you as an individual. So, Alan... What do you like to do for rest and relaxation? I've got grandchildren. <laughs> <laughs> I've got four grandchildren, so um, that's that's my rest and relaxation. We actually had them around for a Halloween party uh-huh. yesterday. Yeah, that's great fun uh, and exhausting. Yes, they can be, but you can give them back. Yeah, but um, I don't need to. They're, they're good kids. That's okay. <laughs> now, thinking back, what was... Your favorite birthday and why? My 21st birthday. It was the day I got married. My dad made me promise that I wouldn't get married until I was 21. And so it's a stroke of being obedient, but proving that I wouldn't, uh, that I still had a bit of a rebel. I got married on my 21st birthday. Now, the oddest job you ever had, not in comics, just something that you did to pay the bills, to make ends meet, before you could make a living doing comics. Well, I actually wanted to be a carpenter when I was younger. And the place that I was going to go to train closed down a year that I was to leave school. So I went back to school and started to do uh, the next set of exams before I could go to uh, university, which I didn't want to do. I was doing um, English, biology and art, which was like three totally unrelated subjects. And I went off uh, to do a summer job and decided I really preferred earning money than the idea of going to college. So I didn't go back. I met the girl who became my wife and uh, the rest is history. I was working in a warehouse uh, then, and that was for nine years. And the last two years, I was working part-time in comics, and there wasn't any really demeaning jobs. I, I was uh, just working in a warehouse, driving a forklift. Now, this is a hypothetical situation. If you were stuck on a deserted island, what book would you want to have with you to read to pass the time? It's not a matter of survival. You don't need a survival guide, but just something, take your mind off the situation. No, no, they can be a set if it's related. There's a, there's a series of books that I, I read regularly. Um, I like Edgar Rice Burroughs a lot. What one series of books that I, I do like, and when you were asking me about what I would like to draw as a comic, is uh, E. Doc Smith's Landsman, and that's one of my all-time favorites, and I, I read that fairly regularly. Another hypothetical, if Marvel were to make an action figure of you, what would be your accessory? Something that speaks to who you are. A toolbox. I do all my own sort of home maintenance. I'm sort of known as being very, fairly practical and handy. That's a good skill to have. <laughs> I'd be the mission to fix it. <laughs> very good. When you're resting and relaxing, what is your favorite beverage to have? Tea. English tea? Earl Grey? No, no, just regular um, English breakfast tea, you'd call it. And I drink it very, very weak without milk. Is there something, and this doesn't have to be in comics, of course, that kind of bothers you, kind of grinds your gears... But conversely, is there something then that can always make you happy 
that if you're having something bothers you, you can turn to something and makes you feel good again. Like, for example, there might be a favorite album that I like to listen to when I'm having a bad day, and it puts me in a good mood. Any situation like that, something that bothers you, something that brings you back. I'd have to say that things that bother me are usually things that come out of nowhere. They're unpredictable irritations. It's not like there's a regular thing. Um, I, I think my life's fairly organized, and uh, the day-to-day operation of my life it's fairly controlled, and it's only when something ridiculous and pointless where you've got someone being uh, incompetent or stupid that irritates. Um, I, I get frustrated by people who don't do their job properly. I think it's called uh, not suffering fools gladly. I think family is, is my antidote to everything. I look forward to seeing my family. My wife is always around. Um, my kids visit regularly. And, uh, you know, as I say, with the grandchildren, that's, that's the thing that makes me feel good. Do you have any regrets about... The one that got away, for example, and what first brought this to my mind was speaking about comics, actually. For me, it was I saw a comic when I was at a show years ago, decades ago, Daredevil number one, and I was like, yeah, I've read it. I don't need a copy. And it was like a hundred bucks. Now it's way, way out of my reach. So I was like, ah, I should have acted upon that. Do you have anything like that? I regret something that just kind of got away from you. And it could have been an assignment or something you wanted to do. I did go through a point where I had a comic collection. My dad got on to me about how ridiculous comics were, so I destroyed them um, to prove how unimportant they were to me. And I just kept odd pages and odd panels, which is why I had scrapbooks. But um, I had uh, The Avengers and Fantastic Four and uh, various other titles from number one onwards, and I uh, just destroyed them all. Wow. And I've heard people say, oh, yeah, I had all these great comics. My mom threw them away or my parents threw them away. They didn't know what they were. And when they see them, they go, oh, I used to have that. I've never heard someone say, I destroyed them to show. <laughs> I'm not that attached to them. My dad was giving me a hard time about, you know, all these comics, all these smelly comics that are lying around, you know, what, what they do. So I destroyed them. And then when I told him I destroyed them, he said, what do you do that for? They might be worth something one day. <laughs> Now he says it. Yeah, I think the strangest thing that my, my dad ever said to me is like, how many do you need? I said, well, it's not a question of need. I actually read them. So I buy them, I read them, I keep them. You know, it's just, I can't explain it. The idea of collecting comics seemed absurd. Um, my father would read the comics that I had, but he wouldn't respect them in the way that I would. I wanted them not to be folded or creased or anything. He, mm-hmm. I wanted them kept pristine, but he would roll them up and put them in his pocket and generational thing i was on that cusp of where comics started to become valuable and treasured yeah that's why the older ones are so much more expensive and really nice shape because they were heavily used and and rolled up and put in back pockets and folded and everything so they're much harder to come by and since we're looking back what do you wish you knew when you were younger that you know now like there's plenty of things i can look back and say boy i wish i knew this back then because i'd have a whole different direction i'd take or I'd maybe be less stressed about certain things now if I knew that back then. Is there anything you wish you knew could relate to comics, working in comics, that you wish you knew when you were younger? Not really, not specifically. I think I've been very, very lucky. I've met lots of great people over the years, and there's been a, a huge degree of kindness that I've found in comics that if I was prepared to put the work in and do the job that people wanted, I found that they would be tremendously supportive of me and and it's left me with a feeling of being very, very lucky to have gotten when I did and to have had the experiences that I did. So I don't really feel like there's anything. I mean, the sort of thing I regret is every time I finish a page, I, I know I could do it better if I had another shot, if I could do it again. 
because the process of doing each page is a learning process. So I'm always disappointed with every page that I do as soon as I've done it. But I have to let it go and get on with the next one. And how do you measure success? What do you consider to be success? Um, contentment, I suppose. You know, I'm not really uh, interested in uh, being rich or um, I've got no expensive hobbies or anything like that. Yeah, just contentment. Being able to live with myself. That's a pretty good standard to live by. <laughs> Alan, I appreciate you taking the time to spend with me and discuss Tarot, which is coming up, Avengers vs. Defenders through Marvel, and about your other interests and work. Thank you so much for being on Creator Talks. Well, thank you. I've enjoyed it. Thank you very much. Okay, folks, you're really lucky this week because it was a short interview, and so was last week's. So, you lucky people, because you demanded it. Yes, you. I'm talking to you right now. There's another podcast next week. Another interview. It's going to be a little longer, and it's coming out around Thanksgiving. It would be out on Thanksgiving. I might release it just a little bit earlier so you have a chance to listen to it while you're driving to visit relatives, getting the turkey ready, or watching someone else get the turkey ready, which is what I prefer to do. My guest next week is a writer, Stephanie Phillips. She is joining me to talk about her book coming out through Dark Horse Comics, The Butcher of Paris. It's a five-parter being illustrated by a guest that was on my show a couple months ago, Dean Kotz. I told you Dean was going places. He's got a lot of books out this year. Warlord of Mars Attacks through Dynamite Comics. Gods and Gears coming out through Alterna Comics. So I'm really looking forward to discussing this book with its writer, Stephanie Phillips, because it's about Marcel Patois. He was an actual person, a murderer, who lived in Nazi-occupied Paris. He was supposedly part of the resistance, helping people escape Nazi-occupied Paris, but they did not escape to South America. The story of the murders are real, and the detective who investigates the cases of the Butcher of Paris is also an actual historical figure. So we're going to learn more about the research that went into Stephanie's story. And we'll also learn about the research she did on her own family for this story. So please join us. Meanwhile, you can find me on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Creator Talks Pod. That's at Creator Talks Pod. On the weekends, I will post my Saturday Silver Age and Sunday Bronze Age comics from my collection. The podcast is free, so subscribe. And please rate and review on iTunes. It goes a long way to helping the show and spread the word to friends and family who like comics and comic book creators. And by the way, if you want to reach me directly through email, that's creatortalks at gmail.com, creatortalks at gmail.com. For Creator Talks, this has been Christopher Calloway. Thank you for listening. Until next time. Until next time.